0: everything's uh, done with a a focus on really high quality fish so we could catch a lot more fish if we weren't focused so much on quality everything we do basically is is focused on quality rather than quantity
1: this is fishtales a seafood podcast i'm john sussman You only have to have a quick look at North Queensland fisherman Chris Bolton's social media to gain an immediate understanding of his passion for fishing. With his day-to-day work captured and shared to his thousands of dedicated followers. Committed to getting the freshest local fish into the kitchens of the highest profile chefs, he's earned the utmost respect and appreciation from some of Australia's finest restaurants. Equally enthusiastic about passing on his knowledge and love of the industry to the younger generations, Chris Bolton is the son of a fisherman who carries tradition and passion to work every day.
0: Chris Bolton, um, I'm located at Curramine Beach, far North Queensland, about two hours south of Cairns. Yeah, it started, I, I can't remember really, John, I was still born into fishing. Um, all of my family were, were fishermen, some some commercial fishermen, but. Those that weren't commercial fishing were were very much um, recreational fishing, and, and yeah, I was basically born with a with a fishing line in my hand. When I was primary school, I um I found any any time my father or my grandfather was going fishing, I, I always um suddenly came down sick, so I had had a lot of days off school when I was young. Um, yeah, I was always, always on the water. I found any excuse I could to go fishing with with someone. I was actually planning on being, uh, so my parents wanted me, wanted me to be a marine biologist. Um, my marks were good at school and all that, but once I sort of hit 13, 14, I just, I was bored with school and all I wanted to do was go fishing, um. By that stage, John, I was having more days off school to go fishing than I was actually going to school and Um my uncle owned a prawn trawler in Torres Straits that worked in Torres Straits at the time and Yeah, I I said, you know, I wanna go on I wanna work. I don't wanna I don't like the school anymore, I wanna to go to work and anyway they said to me, All right, well, you go up on the trawler and do one stint, and you'll you'll be you'll be running to go back to school. I said, "All right, then we'll we'll see how it goes." So, I they flew me up to the Torres Straits. We had about six months to go of the prawn season up there. Um, I stayed up there. After about three months, they they, they were telling me I needed to come home and all that, but I didn't want to come home because I thought if I came home they'd send me back to school. So I did six and a half months straight. That was my very first commercial fishing experience and the first thing my mother asked me when I got home, was he ready to go back to school yet? I said, no, that's it. I'm not. never going back to school. I'm, I'm fishing. That's me. So yeah, that was, that was how it started.
1: Pursuing something that is a genuine passion can lead to taking jobs that no one else wants. Succeeding in any field often sees the people who are great at the jobs no one else wants rising to the top. Chris's journey across the world of fishing highlights how passion and commitment are the secret ingredients to success.
0: I think I did six or seven years prawn trawling and and scallop fishing on the trawlers and Oh, then, John, I'd sort of I, – I, I wanted to – I loved line fishing. I'd always loved line fishing. You know, I, I liked the trawling and, and just being on the ocean, but line fishing was what I really loved. So I started line fishing then for, for coral trout, and that was sort of when the live coral trout started. It was really booming, um, late 90s sort of thing. So I went to live coral trout I already knew a lot about lion fishing I'd done it you know as a kid a lot um, and yeah once I started lion fishing I just I loved it. That, that was exactly what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid and and um, yeah it just went from there it, i was I was working on a on a trout bait at the time and a friend of mine said "Oh look." I've just been offered a really good deal here um with Beach de Mer. Do you do you want to um would you like to come and work with me diving for Beach de Mer? It's it's in the local area, you know, you'll make a lot more money than you will than you would be out of live trout. And I know you love diving so it's probably the perfect job and I I jumped at it or I didn't hesitate at all. So I went and did some Beach de Mer diving for almost two years. Um, I loved it, John. I loved that. That was really good. But, um, that ended. My uncle again rang me. He, he was, he was, um, in a bit of a situation where he badly needed crew on the trawler. He said, Look, I really need you to come and help me on the boat. Can you just come and help me for a while? So I went back with him for a while. But again, I thought, Oh, geez, I've been here and done this before. I don't really like this trawling. Um, and then um, around that same time, another friend was at a barramundi hatchery and he said to me, oh, look, we need we need someone as a broodstock technician. You'll be just basically looking after the broodstock, feeding them and that sort of thing. And he said, you know, um, have, try a lamb job for a while. He's still working with fish, but try that for a while. So I did that for a bit. Um just wasn't the same, John, I was, you know, I love loved doing it, but it just wasn't the same as, as fishing. So that was, yeah, it was about six months. It was fairly short-lived. It, it was good. I liked doing it, but, yeah, I just had to get back fishing.
1: Pay for fishermen and women can vary greatly depending on experience, the size of the vessel they work on, and also the type of fish or seafood being caught. Mostly, though, the pay for fishermen is often modest. Fishermen in their 20s across the country are running into a wall of astronomical start-up costs without resources available to help them manage the transition financially to get into their own business. Getting into your own business in fishing is hard, harrowing, and a costly punt.
0: After that day, John, um, the beach, the moor, diving and the and the barramundi hatchery and that... Um, I went back to trout fishing again and I just thought, you know, I'm not really, the only way I'm going to get my own business up and running or save enough money to get my own business up and running is, is earn big money. Um, you know, there's not, you don't make huge money being a decky on, on fishing boats or even skippering boats. Um, so I thought, all right, I'll, I'll go and try and go out to the mines for a while. I've heard it's big money out there. I'll go out to the mines for a while and, and see what comes of it. You know, I didn't really, didn't really know what to expect, whether I was going to last long or whether I was going to make money or I could even end up staying at the mines. I wasn't really sure, but anyway, I thought, well, that, that's about the best hope I've got. So I'll go out to the mines. Um, Long story short, John, I met Kim out at the mines. Um, my partner, she was a geologist out there. Um, I did I, I did five years there at the mines, put some money away. Um, by that time, you know, Kim and I, Kim was a bit over the mining lifestyle as well. It's good money out there, John, but it's not the best lifestyle, that's for sure. And I just every day out there fishing was in the back of my head so we we both had a bit of money put away and i said to kim one day i said you know what let's just go back to the coast and and we'll go fishing and kim's dad's a abalone diver in in tassie so she sort of had a fair bit of background in the fishing industry and she didn't hesitate either she said yep let's let's do it so yeah, we, we left the mines and and got our own boat and started started our own business.
1: What sets Chris apart from many other fishermen is his commitment to absolute quality and a focus on every detail of the catch. Every fish is caught the way reef fish should be caught, one by one using hook, line and sinker. Using his extensive experience, he works using an approach which is committed to both excellence and sustainability. His techniques... Developed to ensure the fish is kept to the best possible condition, the result of years of development and a lifetime of commitment.
0: So it's all line caught, John. One hook, one line. Um, you know, just like it was done 50 years ago, hand line. It's all hand lines. So my hands have regularly got cuts all over them from the from the line. But um, yeah, you just go out and you've got to. It's all. You know, you need a lot of experience to know where to go and how to catch basically coral trouts. What I mostly target these days. Um, you're in little five meter boats. You basically, the fish bites your hook, your line, your hook, and you pull that fish up. So from the minute that, well, the second that fish bites the hook, um, it's probably only sometimes five, ten seconds until you have that fish beside the boat. Um, then you, generally, John, when it gets to the top of the water, I've got my right hand, I'm, I'm taking that last handful of line, which the fish is only just below my hand. As I'm pulling it out of the water, my left hand is reaching for that icky dynes Um because that first few, the faster you can... Um, kill that fish and stop the, stop it stressing the, the better quality fish it's going to be. So almost instantly, you know, it doesn't, if you hold it there and take a photo or let it bloody kick around on the deck and slap around on the deck, well, that whole time that fish is stressing. Um, and, you know, the average person probably won't notice it but we don't we don't sell to obviously. uh average people like the people we sell to are, are at the top of their game as well and they can pick the difference so as fast as I can possibly do it, that's that fish is um brain spiked, gill snipped and then placed in an ice slurry to get that temperature down fast. Um that makes a big difference to quality. You know, when when I when I train new crew, I try and get them to realise the difference it makes. Um, a lot of people have a lot of trouble understanding or even believing in the quality of Eki Jamie. Um, I still see it now on a regular basis. I have people tell me that it's all all garbage and and you don't need to be doing it and. You know, ten seconds doesn't matter. Whereas, you know, I I I really believe it does matter. I think one second matters. Um. So yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's hard to yeah I don't know. It, it's hard to explain to people. But what I generally do, John, is someone that a, a crew member that doesn't realise. The difference, what I'll do is I'll say, all right, you do one fish how you think is the best way to do it. And I'll do my fish like this. Tonight we'll have them for dinner. Um, you can watch me fill both fish. We'll separate both fish when we cook them and, and you tell me the difference. And every time I do that, John, that, that basically, um, yeah, there's no, <laughs> they don't question it after that anyway.
1: As the skipper, crew, engineer, receiver, packer and dispatcher, Chris's day encompasses every aspect of the fish's journey from water to plate. Whilst it means he can keep total control on every element of the process, it also demands really long days and
0: nights. So a day, if I was going for a day's fishing tomorrow, John, I'd be up at at four o'clock Go out and get everything ready in the boat, the hand lines, hooks, sinkers, bait, ice, make sure all that's ready. Um, I'll make sure the batteries and things are charged in the boat. You don't need a breakdown being being out there. Most of the time we've got no phone service. Um, yeah, go down to the boat ramp, put the boat in. You've got, you know, close reefs are around 20 mile, which is about an hour's run from the coast. Sometimes I'll run two to three hours out. Um, You're fishing by sort of seven, eight o'clock. You just look around and when you get out there, it's you've really got to, you can't say, all right, I'm going to go to this spot today and and fish there because you really got to get out there and just see how everything is on the day. You know, it's it's very much, um, yeah, you've just got to go with the flow. You can't. So, yeah, I'll look around and, yep, all right, everything's lining up here, the tides, the winds, the currents, all that. I'll I'll fish here and, um, yeah, generally generally, I'll I'll stay in that area. You catch catch your fish for the day. Um, It's not big catches. When I do days like that, John, it's only um, 20 or 30 fish for the whole day. Um, I'll come back, get home usually around – Five o'clock, you're sunburnt. you're hot, you're tired, and then I'll, we've got our own cold room and packing facilities here. Generally, I drive the boat right up beside the cold room, take the fish out of the boat and pack it straight into um, air freight boxes. I'll message a chef or a restaurant that I've already spoken to and just confirm with them. The catch i've got and, and that it'll be coming tomorrow um and yeah we get we get that fish then picked up by courier that gets taken to the airport and that fish generally arrives by two three o'clock the next afternoon so restaurants anywhere in australia that is you know we can have fish caught today being served at a restaurant in adelaide for instance tomorrow night Uh, It's all very, very fast. Many
1: chefs say they are produce-driven. In reality, the pressures of business, the demand for profitability, or at least a known result, and customer expectation for consistency of the menu often preclude chefs from having this absolute flexibility to be genuinely produce-driven, especially those wanting to work closely with a single wild-catch fisher like Chris Bolton. A successful relationship between a great catcher and a great cook demands equal measures of trust, confidence, and knowledge.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I keep in regular contact with all of our chefs and customers. So they'll, for instance, uh, some of them, John, will have standing orders, you know, every week they'll say, all right, we'll take three or four boxes this week whenever you've got it. Um whatever you catch basically, they, they sort of – a lot of them leave it up to me on what species to send. Um, some will, you know, every couple of days they'll they'll message me or call me and ask me what my plans are for the week or for next week. Um, we just all try and work together. Yeah, everyone's very good to, deal. all of their customers are really good to deal with now. I've dealt with the same people for a few years now. So they know how I work and I sort of know how they work and it all works pretty well. John, um, we also get people that, you know, there might be an event next Friday, for instance, where someone will ring me and say, look, I need 50 kilos of large trout next Friday. Can you do that? And I'll say, alright, the weather looks okay for so then I should be able to do it. Obviously there's no no promises with fishing, wild caught fish, but I'll do my best or I'll say no, there's no chance of that, sorry, the weather's horrible for so next week. So yeah, sorry, but you'll have to have to try and get it somewhere else or or yeah. Um but yeah, I do regularly regularly in contact with chef.
1: Chris Bolton's customer list is a who's who of the best chefs and restaurants, not only around Australia, but through Southeast Asia and soon to be in the US. The support, encouragement and friendship of great chefs is as much a part of incentivising and rewarding great fishermen like Chris as it is a supply relationship.
0: To the north we've got Lizard Island, Lizard Island Resort, um, Orpheus Island which is fairly local to us, um, Townsville. Brisbane, Sydney, a lot, the majority of our catch goes, goes throughout Sydney. Um, Melbourne at times, Adelaide, Perth, pretty much right around Australia, John. Um, occasionally some gets exported. Um, Singapore, Hong Kong, places like that where we're actually looking into, um, and talking with a couple of people now about getting some to, to the US and Europe. So that's, um, yeah I'm looking forward to seeing that happen, but as far as chefs one of the people that's helped me and given me the most support the whole way along has probably been Lennox hasty from Fire door in sydney he he's 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 been unreal you know and he's one of the people john that he's probably more of a friend now than a than a than a business um yeah, I don't know how to say that John. But anyway, um he's become a friend. <laughs> he's become a friend, you know, he rings me whenever there's flooding up here, he rings to make sure we're all good or he rings me at Christmas to say Merry Christmas and just things like that. But but not only him, John, there's many like Josh Nyland's supported me fairly well through the whole the whole thing, um a lot of chefs give me a lot of support, John. It's, it's really good, you know, and that seeing, seeing chefs appreciate what we do like that makes me, makes me go that extra, extra mile as well. So, it, it's, yeah, it works well.
1: Ask any great fisherman about what is one of the most critical control points to catching good fish, and they'll always reply that it is the quality of their bait. Fresh bait can mean the difference between a catch to remember and a fishing trip to forget nowhere else is this more important than in the high stakes world of game fishing where the money spent on the sport is as big as the fish being chased chris bolton's journey into the world of bait is not surprising
0: yeah well the bait the bait how that started um my dad actually he's sort of getting on a bit now but it, rather than being out there catching reef fish and things, you, uh, you'll never keep him off the ocean. But rather than catching reef fish and stuff like that, he get more goes for fun now, which, and then he started, um, chasing billfish, you know, marlin, sailfish, things like that. And to catch those sort of fish, you need garfish and they need to be really high quality, then marlin apparently are very, very fussy with what they eat and very smart. So you have to have really, really good quality bait to catch garfish. And he was struggling to get any good quality garfish, and he said to me, oh, you should go and buy a bait license and, and catch me some bait. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in bait. No one pays any, any money for bait. I'm not doing that. You know? And he said, oh, well, What if I buy the license? Will you catch it for me? He said, Oh, geez. All right. Well, you get me the license and I'll go and catch what you need. So anyway, I caught it for him and he went to a, he went in a tournament one day and he won it. And anyway, everyone asked him where he got the bait from. Um, you know, some of them said, Oh, we've never seen. Bait of that quality before? Where did you get that from? And Dad said, "Oh, the young fella, young fella caught it. He, he um, give him if you give him a ring, he might might catch you some." So I started getting phone calls from people wanting garfish and you know offering big money for these high quality garfish, and I thought, "Oh well, I'll start catching a few more and supplying a few other people, and that might pay for the license anyway." Um, Anyway, the more I caught John, the more I sold, and I just couldn't keep up as fast as I could catch these garfish. So they were going in the door. I thought, shit, there might be a dollar to be made out of these garfish. So I got a bit more serious about it and started going more regularly. and, And that was when I first got on social media. I'd never been, I didn't know. What Facebook or Instagram was at that time, and then a couple of friends said to me, you know, if you if you advertise this sort of stuff on social media, you'll you'll just go crazy. And I, so I did that, and all of a sudden I had some of Australia's most well-known game fishermen calling me, wanting this bait. Um, Luke Fallon, he's known right around Australia or the world probably as one of the best marlin fishermen. Um, Several people like that from all around Australia started ringing me, so yeah, that was where that started, and then I think we started having a couple of people ring up, wanting them, asking me if I could eat them, if they could eat the garfish, and I said, oh, I guess you could eat them, people do eat garfish, so they're perfect quality, but I'm, I'm not really selling them as food. I'm just selling them as bait, but there's no reason why you couldn't eat them if you wanted to eat them. So then that got me thinking, and then I, I sort of did some looking around, and I thought, shit, garfish very popular down south as food. Maybe I should try and sell some of these as food. Um, and, yeah, then next thing you know, John, we were selling probably more as food than, than we were as, as bait, so... Yeah, that was how the garfish started.
1: The premium specialist catching Chris undertakes is key to building a long-term sustainable commercial reef fishing business and industry.
0: The coral trout fishery, I I have, yeah, I see no problems at all with it. Coral trout are very, very fast growing fish. Um, Very sustainable, stocks are at at very good levels at the moment. Pretty well exactly where we want them to be. Well, they can always be higher, that's for sure, but, you know, they're at 60%, supposedly at 60% of uncaught, uncaught biomass, which is good. Um, there's not too many fisheries anywhere in the world that their stocks are at that high. Um, there's a few species, John, that, that need to be more carefully looked at, the slower growing species. Um, but, Fisheries management and Great Barrier Reef Marine Park are, are getting more and more on that. Mm-hmm. Um, since COVID, there's been a massive, massive increase in recreational fishing, which I think is needs a bit more focus on. But in general, John, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm my dad comes out with me here and there for a day and, um, you know, he was he's been fishing these same reefs since he was a kid and, and sometimes he just says, you know, bloody hell dear, there's more fish out here than when I was a kid, which is bloody good to see, you know. So seeing seeing that and seeing the amount of fish that are out there at the moment, yeah, I I don't have any um any real concerns over it.
1: The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority's Reef Guardian Program recognizes the good environmental work undertaken by communities and industries to protect the Great Barrier Reef. The program involves working closely with those who use and rely on the reef, both for recreational business, to help build a healthier and more resilient reef. Reef Guardians demonstrate that a hands-on, community-based approach can make a real difference to the health and resilience of the reef. Reef guardians take on voluntary actions beyond what is required by law, and sharing information. These actions help to improve the economic sustainability of industries operating in the Great Barrier Reef region and ensure the environmental sustainability of the marine park.
0: Yeah, the reef Pro, uh, reef guardian programs run by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Now they they control what happens in the Great Barrier on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, they manage the marine park. So the Reef Guardian program, there's fishers involved, there's local councils, there's schools. Um, Yeah, and and to be involved in the Reef Guardian program, you have to be – you have to go above and beyond what's legally required of you. So, you know, ourselves, John, we – We use steel sinkers. We, you know, get the most value out of our fish. We're not out there to take the most fish we can catch. We're out there to, to get the most value out of a limited resource. Um, you know, do, do as much as you can for the environment, for the Great Barrier Reef, rather than, rather than just being out there fishing. Um, you know, we do, we do, we participate in clean up days and things like that. Quite often we'll just go for the day and, and go along the beaches or the islands and pick up rubbish. Um, just little things like that, John. It's not, not a lot. Um, it's not hard. And, and I think it's a bloody good thing. The Reef Guardian program, um, schools, I, I like the schools being involved. They, they teach the, the young kids that, you know, one, one thing in particular is that every bit of rubbish, no matter where you drop a piece of rubbish on the ground, well, it's going to end up in, in, on the Great Barrier Reef. So the kids are really, it, it's teaching that next generation, you know, the right way to do things and about sustainability and, and things like that. And yeah, it's, I think there's only 20, 26 or 27 fishermen in Queensland that are part of the Reef Guardian program. Um, and not only that, John, they, they come and do interviews, you know, that, and basically you, you have to be someone that cares about the environment and, and the community as well and, and actually be a decent person. It's, it's not easy. It took us about a year or two to actually get into the reef, be accepted into the reef guardian program. So yeah, it's a good thing.
1: Many people consider humble cardboard as an environmentally friendly material. That's because it is. It's organic, ethical and sustainable, amongst the best of the reusable packaging solutions out there. At present, however, the default form of packaging for shipping chilled seafood is expanded polystyrene boxes. This has the advantage of being light, rigid and a good insulator, but it also means that packaging is single use and can contribute to plastic pollution. The challenge for the industry is to find an alternative that is practical, thermally efficient, robust and good value. It's not an easy proposition for a small single operator like Chris.
0: Packaging is very bloody difficult actually, John. Um, we, we started just with styrofoam boxes without really even thinking much about it. You know? and, um, uh, particularly Island Resorts were one that, that first started Talking to us about sustainable packaging. Um, some of these resorts, you know, whatever goes on, there has to be shipped off again. or So they they didn't want styro. And then when I started thinking about it, and I thought, shit, you're right. Styrofoam is not good at all for the environment. We need to we need to do something there, and just cutting down on plastic as well, like. The amount of plastic, I stood back one day and I thought, Holy shit, the amount of plastic we use in this packaging is bloody crazy. Um, so, we, we do, we're still now done in the process of trying to find something that everyone's happy with. Um, when we do find the cardboard packaging or recyclable packaging, we send samples out to. Most of our customers, usually it's the island resorts first because they're probably the most important ones to, they're, they're on the Barrier Reef itself and, and like I say, they, what goes on there has to come back off. Um, so yeah, we're constantly working with our customers there with packaging. We, you know, sometimes you think, oh, yeah, beauty. This is the, this is the one we want. It's, yeah. They, they all give you the good feel about how sustainable it is and, and how good this packaging it is. But when you when you read into some of the things it's not as straightforward as it seems. It's not it's not a case of, yep, cardboard's better than styrofoam. You you really once you read into all the details of how it's made and, and yeah, it's it's not straightforward, John. We're still going through a lot of that now, but again we'll we'll get it right, um, no matter how long it takes. But the other thing is it's it's it is bloody expensive, John. This sustainability in general becomes bloody expensive, so you've got to look at that side sort of it too. You know, everything's the cost of everything around us is going up and then you add this some of this packaging on top, well you sort of gotta Yeah, factor all that in as well. And not only the chefs and restaurants, you know, I talk to them about it and they realize what's involved, but it's not so much them because we can pass the cost on to the chefs or restaurants, but they've also got to pass that cost on and to the end consumer and get them to understand why the prices are so high as well. So it's, yeah, it's not, it's all easier said than done, John. It's, it's, it's all, um, Yeah, all the juggling apps.
1: Chris attracts a lot of attention, especially the amazing quality fish which swim across his Instagram account. But to be a great fisherman demands a load of hard work and true love for the job, much of which is the result of years of back-breaking, time-consuming and frustrating time on the water. To be a great fisherman is no different to being a great chef or a restaurateur. It takes a huge commitment to learning about the role and be confident about the future.
0: We do get a lot of interest. We've got a big list of names there now that from young fellows that want jobs, John, but it, it's very hard until you actually go and do it. You know, there's there's a lot of young fellows have, have very different ideas where, what I mean by that is, you know, they think fishing When they think, oh, line fishing, and see all my photos on social media, they 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 get the wrong idea. A lot of them think it's a dream job where it's nice and cruisy, and oh, it's taking photos and beautiful reef and things like that. Where in reality, John, it's a bloody tough job. Um, And when you start out, it's not the best money. It's it's very low money actually when you first start out. You've got to learn the ropes. It's like an apprenticeship. Um so you've got to be committed to to the industry, to the job, you know, you can't just do it for a few months and and expect to make good money straight away and 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 that which which seems a problem with the younger generation. You now they they don't seem to be as prepared to the time and the hard yards in to make it happen. Um, we have got a couple of good young fellows there now that I think will go places. But and and you know we'll we'll I'll keep trying, John. I won't give up on it. That's for sure. We'll we'll find the right people eventually. It's going to be a slow process, but yeah, we'll we'll get there. There's good good young fellows out there, I'm sure. of it. and and there's there's a future there. You know, I think. I think the fishing industry in general has trouble attracting the next generation now because they're so worried about sustainability and um, jobs. You know, any of the young fellas that throw in the towel after a few weeks, I'll, I'll sit there and ask them why, you know, why, why they leave? Is it, is it, is it, is, it <laughs> is it me being too hard? Because I am very strict on, um, there's that. but... Or, you know, why, why they leave or why, what, what's the reasons? And, and the majority of the time, John, it's, it's, it's more about job security. They, they look at quotas constantly decreasing and ever increasing rules and regulations and they worry that, you know, well, if I do this for 10 years, you know, I do it for two years basically making nothing or, or apprentice wages, which, which are very low, and then another eight or 10 years or whatever um, in the industry, I, I'm learning things and learning the ropes, well, am I going to have a future here, you know, what? who's to say that in 10 years' time there's going to be um, any commercial fishing or... You know, they also see, and unfortunately, John, a lot of smaller operators um, feeling the pinch and and dropping out, and and slowly the industry seems to be moving into the hands of of bigger companies. They they see that and and worry. You know, like, am I going to be able to afford to have my own boating in? in 10, 15, 20 years' time, is there going to be, you know, that, that's sort of the big concern. I think the biggest concern for the young fellas, which I, I can see, I can see where they're coming from there too. I, I'm, I'm actually a bit concerned about that myself, but, um, I don't know. I, I just think, you know, everyone told me when I was young, John, don't, don't be an idiot, don't go fishing, you'll never get anywhere fishing, but, um, yeah, I think if you doesn't matter doesn't matter what you want to do if you love it and you put your heart and soul into it you'll you'll succeed. But it's trying to trying to um get people to see that. To, uh, yeah, it's easier said than done. For a specialist
1: fishing business to grow, there is a demand to pass on a deep well of knowledge about all aspects of the business. Not only the fishing catching, but how to make the most out of that catch and how to get it to market.
0: We've just bought a bigger boat. Well, it's a 14-metre boat. So instead of, um, you know, before I used to do basically everything myself, catch the fish myself or every fish that's caught by me. But now we've got a bigger boat, which rather than what we do there, John, is we've got four small boats that we, that we tow out now. So I've got, you know, several crew. That that I want to teach um, as much as I can, so that it's not just me with this knowledge and capabilities. I'll, I'll be able to share it with hopefully young young fellows, John, that want to make a career out of fishing. Um, yeah, I want to. That's what I want to do. I want to. I want to share some of this knowledge and, and try and try and make what we do more. Um, uh oh, a more you know get this sort of approach through through more of the industry, like right now, there's not a lot of people that that do what we do or not a lot that really focus on quality fishing commercial fishing is still the majority of it still is focused on quantity john um i wanna i wanna try and change that a bit, I think. People don't, until you do it, John, you don't realise that you can make the same money by catching a lot less fish. Um, If I can show some of these young fellas that and get some of these up-and-comers to realise that you you can actually make the same or possibly more money by catching half the fish, well, that makes a lot more sense. It's, it's a lot more sustainable and, and everyone benefits more. You know, I know everyone that I've spoken to ever would rather pay more money, <clears throat> but have high quality fish than, than get cheap fish, but it tastes, tastes like garbage, you know. So that, that's what I want to do, John. I want to, I want to, um, yeah, just try and pass that knowledge on and, and make the, quality over quantity things become become more commonplace, I suppose.
1: Sustainability is an ethic. It starts with respect, not just for the environment but for the resource, the people and the future. Respect is a feeling of deep admiration which comes from being a good steward of the water by not taking more than you can eat.
0: I can remember a couple of times as a kid we lived on the Johnson River. and a couple of times as a kid, I'd go down and catch black brim, you know, there were a they were bloody thick as in the river there, but I'd, I'd go down at times and bring four or five black brim home. And the old man would say to me, well, well, what are you going to do with them? Oh, I don't know. I'll just stick them in the freezer and he you know, we'd, we'd get a balding going for, for bringing fish home for no reason. You know, it was like, you can't do that. You just, you just cannot do that. I don't mind you bringing fish home if you're going to do something with it, but don't just bring them home and waste them. If you've got a reason to bring them home, bring them home. And my uncle was the same. Um, you know, some nights there on the trawlers, John, you're doing 18-hour days and you're tired and cranky. And um, even then, if, if I got slack and didn't respect the product or or – Things like that, yeah. It, it was, it was on for young and old. I heard about it. And like I say, I hated it at times, John, but it bloody taught me a lot. Um, and you know, back then, John, a lot of people used to throw, as, as I'm sure you realize, back then in the early days, a lot of people used to throw all sorts of rubbish over the side of the boat. But I was taught we, we never ever threw a thing over it and, you know, I was always taught that if you respect the environment, it'll, it'll respect you, you know, sort of karma in a way. So if you treat things with disrespect, well, don't expect to have any success. So that's sort of, that's always in the back of my mind. I think the more, the better you treat the environment and the more respect you have well the more overall success you'll have it just i don't know there's something there that whether it's karma or mother nature keeping an eye on you or whatever but yeah if you do the best by the environment it'll it'll do the best by you that's sort of what i've always been taught and i'm finding that it is that 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 is very true both of Chris's
1: grandfathers were fishermen. His father and his uncles were fishermen, and they all fished in the same areas of the Great Barrier Reef and catchment that Chris fishes today. It could be said that he spent more days on and in the Great Barrier Reef than he has on dry land.
0: I'd have to say some of the some of the best times I've had of been either with my uncle. You know, he was a big part of what I did when I first started fishing. He was he was um, very well known in the in the fishing industry at the time he's retired now but he was very strict um sometimes I I hated him at times (laughs) but um thinking back to those days there John just I was learning that much and just yeah and I still think back to working for my uncle right now you know and he's yeah he was bloody unreal the amount he taught me and the amount I learned off him but also, my dad, you know, every time he comes out with me now, it's it's bloody good because he talks about the old days when he used to fish with his father out there and we're fishing the same reefs, we're using the same gear, catching the same fish, you know, it's it's, and he's just in his element out there when he's doing that and it's just, yeah, days like that, John, just I've always had a love of the ocean. John, I, I can't imagine doing anything but but being on the ocean. But also, John, um, with the way we operate now, you know, talking directly with chefs and restaurants and actually seeing what happens with that fish and, and not only chefs and restaurants but the people eating, eating at those restaurants, um, they, they quite often contact me and say they've just eaten at icebergs, for instance, and... They had coral trout and it was unreal, or they had red emperor and it was unreal, and just that that side as well, John. It just makes me realise that, you know, while you're out there, we're not just catching that fish for the sake of catching fish. We're actually catching it, seeing where it goes. You talk, you're seeing the whole thing from ocean to plate. You know, it's just that they that that's a bloody. Yeah, it just, it just makes you go that little bit further every day, knowing that people appreciate what you do. It just just makes you put in that extra effort. That, that's, that's what I love, John. It's just, now that we've gone this way, it's just made me love what I do, yeah, even more. With a commitment to
1: ensuring that every fish he takes from the water is in its best condition it can be, whether destined for a plate or a hook. He is without doubt an inspiration to both current and next generation fishers, cooks and anyone who genuinely loves the Great Barrier Reef. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.